Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This programme was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Kia ora, I'm Claire Finlayson, Programme Director of the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival. The 2019 recording that you're about to hear was brought to you with funding from a copyright licensing New Zealand grant and with the support of ORFM. This session, Histories Sent, featuring Maurice Gleitzman, Tina Makareti, Majella Cullinane and Maxine Alterio, and chaired by Sean Brosnahan, was presented by the University Bookshop. Maurice Gleitzman's appearance was supported by the Australian High Commission. Enjoy. Kia ora tātou, e huhui mai nei i tēnei wā, nau mai, haere mai, tauti mai rā. Good morning everybody, and welcome to this session of the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival. Uh, my name's Sean Brosnan. I've been chosen to chair this section, I guess, because I'm a historian, curator at Toitu Otago Settlers Museum. And in that role, my job is to tell stories about Otago's past, usually by using the real artefacts of the time that carry those stories with them. Now, that work has given me a passion for the nitty-gritty detail of our history. So I guess I'm well-placed to ask questions of people who just make stuff up about the past, (laughs) such as our wonderful selection of writers with me on the stage, all of whom have written historical novels. I'd also like to acknowledge this session's sponsor, which is the wonderful uh, Dunedin University Bookshop, and also thank the Australian High Commission for making Morris Kleitzman's appearance here possible. So thank you to those sponsors. Now, what about that title, The Scent of History? Now, I didn't make that up, and I was quite intrigued when I saw it on the festival program. Now, does it refer to the smell of old things? Something I'm very familiar with in my work, particularly paper. Oh, the smell of old paper. When we open up those old newspapers, that to me is the scent of history. When I come back to work after a holiday, I like to go into the archives, open up an old volume and go, I'm back. But perhaps not. I think it's a little bit more subtle than that. It's really about those bits between the things that we know, the things we don't know, the smells, the sounds, the emotions. And this is where these people excel, where people like me struggle to get to grips with those things. But it also put me in mind of my experience in a bookshop in Auckland, you know, where I was pulling a a volume off the shelf, attracted by its beautiful cover and the topic, and then I read the opening paragraphs, and I was hooked. And I want to share those opening paragraphs with you today. It's from... uh, Set and Station by David Downing, set in Berlin during World War II. There was no doubt about it. Two years into the war, the Third Reich was beginning to smell. The U-Bahn was unusually ripe that morning, John Russell thought, though it was only the sheer severity of the Pong which gave rise to any surprise. Berliners seemed increasingly reluctant to use the hyper-abrasive standardised soap which removed both dirt and skin, and there was no alternative to the chemical-rich standardised food which had created a city-wide epidemic of flatulence. Whatever the cause, the U-Bahn was the place to experience the consequences, and several of his fellow passengers were travelling with their noses buried deep in scarves and handkerchiefs. Outstanding. That's a detail you don't get in the history books. The bits between the scent of history. Now let me introduce our authors for you. First we have Magella Cullinane. She's a local, although she comes from Ireland. Um, 
She's been in Otago since being awarded the 2014 Burns Fellowship at the University of Otago. The Life of Death is her first novel, set in World War I. It follows the fortunes of Theodore de Arth through a troubled boyhood in Wellington, on to university here in Dunedin, and then with the Otago Regiment on the Western Front. And then we have Maxine Alterio, The Gulf Between. This is her third historical novel, following earlier novels set in Gold Rush Arrowtown, and another which tracked New Zealand nurses through World War I. But this time, Maxine is exploring the legacies of occupation post-Second World War Naples through the prism of a failing cross-cultural marriage. Then we have Morris Gleitzman, our Australian guest, who is a vastly experienced writer who wrote his first children's novel in 1985 and is currently the Australian Children's Laureate for 2018 and 19. Many of his books have won awards in Australia and internationally, including some very prestigious German ones for the Once series about a Jewish boy's experiences in Nazi-occupied Poland during the Second World War and its aftermath. The final volume in this seven-book series is currently under preparation. And finally, we have Tina Makareti, who teaches creative writing at Massive University and has had a distinguished academic and literary career. The Imaginary Lives of James Pornicki is her fourth book and second historical novel, it tells the tale of a Maori boy orphaned by the musket wars who embarks on a journey that takes him to London in the 1840s where he suffers various adventures and misadventures as a stranger in that strange land. Now we've got under an hour and four writers, plus I'm supposed to leave some time for you to ask questions at the end, so we better get started. How exactly do real historical events or people worm their way into a writer's imagination to create fiction? Well, Emma Donoghue, who's a very successful Irish writer of historical novels, had this to say, a single sentence from a magazine is an absolutely perfect source for me because the perverse thing about researching historical fiction is that you want to find enough to turn you on but not enough to overwhelm you with detail. So if I could pose the question to each of you in turn, how did you approach <coughs> the particular past you've set in this story? What was it about the time and space that hooked you enough in Emma's phrase, turns you on, to produce the characters and storylines in your novel? Um, well, I, I, for me, anyway, it was a little bit circuitous um, because it started with um, stories that my father told me when I was small about my granduncle who uh, fought in World War I and he fought in the Somme, and he was injured twice, and he fought in one regiment called the Munster Fusiliers, and then he... Uh, got injured, and then he went back and he fought in the Connacht Rifles. And what happened at the end of the war is that, um, I presume through shell shock or injury, he ended up in a convalescence home in County Limerick. And his brother and his sister, being my, my grandfather, went to visit him one day and he was gone. He disappeared and the family never knew what happened to him. Um, so that kind of started my interest with the First World War. There was a certificate of his service uh, to the British uh, Army at home, um, with, along with photo albums. And then, so as, as I was always interested in that, and then we moved to New Zealand, and it was while um, walking around a graveyard one day, it was in Pawatahanui, which is not far from Wellington, that I came across the gravestone Theodore de Ath, and I thought, that's such a fabulous name, you know, for a character. I have to steal that. 
And and on my way home, I I was sort of I had sort of voices in my head of Theodore going through school and being teased like what's like you know death warmed up and all of these kind of ideas and the story morphed from starting out of of wanting to ha- what happened to uh, my grand uncle and then being in New Zealand and what I was I I had been probably in New Zealand about four or five years and had been through a number of Anzac services and had always as I said been interested in First World War as as is my partner actually um, whose grandfather died in I think it was North Africa and what I realized was New Zealand was there was a lot of talk and a lot of uh, writing around Gallipoli but there wasn't very much attention on New Zealanders and their role in um, in the Western Front in in France, and I thought that would be really interesting to to explore that. So that's what started me off. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Well, this particular history. So we're talking present or quite recent past. It. I had no intention. I was up on a residency in um, a remote bay in Marlborough Sound, supposed to be writing a collection of short stories, and. I was pounced upon, and there were a few events that contributed to that. So I think it was on the second night, there was this wild, ferocious storm, and it toppled trees all over the property. Now, I'm there for six weeks alone, very remote. And um, then there was um, an aftershock from an earthquake, and I woke, and my bed was trundling along in casters on a wooden floor back and forward. And then the other thing, uh, probably quite foolishly when I look back, but I'd taken a series of Sopranos to entertain myself on my laptop. (laughs) And um, the other thing, down in the uh, room that I was writing on, there was this really intriguing set of photographs, 1950s, early 1960s, and I had been looking at them. And so I woke up this morning and maybe there was a connection uh, to a very early marriage I had to a man from Naples, but I wasn't aware of that at the time, that I was thinking along those lines. So I woke up in the morning. I had a cast of characters. I had um, the time frame, which reflected the photographs, and I had a provisional storyline, and I had the ending of the novel. And so I just pushed aside my short fiction project, even though in my application for this residency I was to be working on it, and I just went into a novel frenzy, and I wrote um, a few early chapters, made notes for others, started to realise that perhaps I was trying to make sense of um, the impact of the rise of fascism and the Second World War in Naples on the civilians. I was very interested at this point, and we, you know, we talked about the nurses, mm-hmm. very much you know, the doctors and nurses, but I wanted to know what happened to the civilians after the war. And if you think about Italy, it was the most, in Naples in particular, it was the most bombed city in Italy during the Second World War. And the years that followed were extremely bleak. It was very, very tough. Like over a third of women turned to prostitution to feed their families. When the departing occupied forces were about to um, leave, the Americans were coming down from the south, they threw dynamite into the water pipes and to the sewerage. And so you had, you know, tremendous um, illness, hunger, poverty, 
And, you know, it's taken a long time for Naples to recover from that, and you still see evidence of those years. So I came home, and I was committed to writing that story. I was really compelled, although it did take me, I have to say, six years to actually write it. And maybe that was partly because of the connection with my past, and I wanted it very much to resonate with outsiders like me, but insiders too, because of that connection. And so I kept pulling back, and it was only when I decided I had to forget about everything and just write the novel for myself, and going to Italy also helped, to Naples. We'll talk about that later. But it was literally a dark and stormy night. It was a dark and stormy night, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Quite a strange experience. Morris? I wanted to write a story about friendship and its capacity to sustain young people in uncertain times. I thought a good way to do this would be to take a friendship between two young people and place it in the middle of the most unfriendly human behaviour I could countenance on a vast scale, and that, of course, meant wartime. And I didn't need to make a list of of possible war candidates because um, I... I have a family background of um, of a non-involvement, I guess, by my paternal grandfather who left his family home in Krakow at the, in, at the very beginning of the 20th century, went off travelling, didn't ever return to um, Poland um, and therefore never saw the extended family he left behind there because they were all killed by the Nazis. And um, I didn't actually realise that this autobiographical um, dimension to the story was was so important to it until after I'd written the first book. What I was focusing on when I decided to write a story for young people of friendship in wartime, I knew from years of talking to many children in the different countries my books are published um, about history in general and about um, World War II and the Holocaust in particular, that most of the young people who would read this book wouldn't know anything about the Holocaust. So I knew it would be a journey of discovery for them. So I decided to structure the first, um, well, I thought it would be the only book at that stage. We, I'm not one of those hugely organised people who plan a seven-part series in advance, although I have noticed that um, that can be very remunerative if, you could, if you're able to do it. <laughs> but... Um, I, I, I knew that I, would, I should structure the story so that it would be a journey of discovery for the young main character. So Felix, the 10-year-old Polish-Jewish boy, we meet him in a Catholic orphanage in the mountains where his parents left him four years earlier. They were able to, unlike many of their um, um, contemporaries, they, they were able to see um, the writing on the wall. And he assumes they've been off as booksellers doing international bookselling business and we'll come back and pick him up. So the story starts with him running away from the orphanage to find out um, why his parents are so late um, picking him up and gradually discovering, but only slowly, um, the terrible things happening in his country. And it gave me the opportunity to also explore many of the ways we use stories, not just in our literary lives, but also in our... um, in our communications between each other, but perhaps most importantly in the way we mediate and um, control how much of the world we take in through the stories we, we tell ourselves. And Felix is able to protect himself from the full realisation of what's going on and its potential impact on him as 
um, a young Jewish person, and also its likely impact on his parents, who um, he, he he has to eventually accept he's probably never going to see again. Okay, thank you, Tina. Mm. Um, kia ora. Um, so, like the others, I had a bit of a circuitous route, um, and I think that the first seed of the book was. Um, I was supposed to be writing my PhD and um, as you do I was looking at the bookshelves around me instead um, and I came across the biography of um, Sarah Bartman who was a koi koi woman who was exhibited in around uh, the early 19th century so 1814 kind of era in um, London and France um, they called her the hot and top Venus and she was extremely objectified and extremely ill-treated um, and I was struck by how as a um, Maori person, an indigenous person who's interested in history, I did not know anything about this particular history of the exhibition of humans although there was something familiar about it um, and I thought what would she have seen and what would she have thought um, which of course even in the most um, meticulously crafted biography we can't actually know um, so I that was in my head and then sometime later I was still doing the PhD um, I went to a colloquium about Māori who travelled uh, it was called Manurere uh, Māori who travelled to um, Britain um, mainly in the 19th century a little bit before the 19th century and a little bit after, afterwards and I came across a few stories and there was one young man he was a, um, a man called James Pumare, actually, um, who was taken to um, the UK by George French Angus um, to be exhibited alongside his etchings of the first etchings ever made, the first drawings ever made of New Zealand houses that was taken to be exhibited in London. And I thought that's that's the kind of um, story I can tell. I can understand. I can try and get inside what someone like that would have seen. So that was the the, the two kind of sparks. <laughs> And I, I didn't want, I didn't want to appropriate or take in any way a real person's story. So I made up a character who went through some of the same things, um, being picked up by an artist. Uh, nobody knows how this happens, so it was all complete fiction. It's all me making it up, and um, and and being exhibited. And what did he see when he looked at London? Um, one of the key things for me was to exhibit humans is quite a barbaric act um, for me. And so um, when uh, Angus's book was actually called Savage Life and Scenes in New Zealand and South Australia, and I thought actually what the young man would have seen would have been quite savage to him, the way um, UK society worked. But I didn't want it to be, I didn't want it to be so, I mean, it's obviously not black and white, cut and dry, so... This young man is also very much in love with the culture that he goes to experience. Um, he loves writing and reading, and, and actually, if you read anything about the um, the the epi um, the epi epigraph, it's epigraph at the beginning of the book um, is an actual quote from a newspaper about um, James Paul Muddy saying he's so um, articulate and um, well spoken. We mistook him for. For an English boy, so you know he he, um, in fact, he's he's a lot. Oh, I can't remember the exact quote, but he's a he um, he's a lot better um, presented than than many many English boys we know of. So um, that was the spark for it. But I I do have to say, in the historical project in general, um, I don't really think of what I'm doing as 
writing history, historical fiction, I tend to think of it as understanding how history works in our lives now, so that history is always living. And this particular project was about the commodification of of humanity and and the way we treat everybody only by what they're kind of worth um, through their labour or through their oddness or through their whatever they have. Um, And I think it probably started before Victorian London, but Victorian London, you know, there was this great burst of, um, I guess, capitalism. Um, And so it's really, um, I think that's why the character is directly addressing the future and in Where the Record Who Bone Sings, there are three storylines, including a contemporary storyline, um, because I'm trying to say through fiction that there is no past. It's all with us. We're still continuing to live out these um, these ways that we might have created back then. But we're, and, and how do we understand why? I mean, it's kind of like what Morris said. How do we understand um, what we're going through today if we don't remember that history? And um, I, I certainly had had not understood the history of human exhibitions. So, yeah. All right. Well, thanks very much. That gives us a good idea of what it was that grabbed you and took you down this particular rabbit hole, as, uh, as we've talked about the rabbit holes of history. But in going down that rabbit hole, how rigorously did you engage with the historical sources to enmesh your fiction into what might be described as the reality of the past? How did you marry that imaginative exercise following your narrative, weaving the real and the unreal together, balancing the research you've done with the creative input you add to it, and did your research ever become a burden to you in trying to tell those stories? And it's a bit of a package, but it's that nature of engaging between the two things, the real and the unreal, the embedded story, and your creative input. Magella? Um, I did a... Well, I did about six months probably reading about World War One. Um, I was particularly interested in the letters, so I was interested in the personal experiences of the soldiers, which I thought would draw me in. I wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, fascinated with particular battles or regiments. Mind you, I did have to put up a wee diagram of of units and military units and regiments and all that because I couldn't remember half of the half of the things. So I was sort of more interested in. I guess a bit like what Maxine was saying was on the family's um, experience um, of of war and what it does to an individual. Um, I was also very interested, I guess, because I'm what we'd call in Ireland a blow-in, which means I'm not from New Zealand. So at that at the stage, I'd been in New Zealand for about five years, and I didn't feel completely comfortable writing from the perspective of a New Zealander. So I decided to choose a character that was half German. And, and um, so his father uh, was a New Zealander, his mother was a German. Um, there's also an Irish character later on in, in, uh, in part, three who be, uh, part two and part three who, be, who becomes a good friend. Um, and I was very interested in the experience of, the, of Germans in World War I um, and also their experience in New Zealand, having German names um, how they were often, you know, uh, attacked and uh, used as as scapegoats. And I wanted to look. I wasn't interested particularly, as I said, in battles. I was more interested in looking at a person who was between uh, two cultures. Um, so obviously had a kind of a loyal loyalty to both. And 
interested in really finding out um, on a basic kind of individual level of, and I think this is what kind of my, I think my biggest question, what I was trying to find out is, or or look at was um, how, you know, a person who comes from a small town in New Zealand is suddenly expected to put on this uniform and to, you know, go into battle. It doesn't matter how much they're trained because they did get extensive training both in New Zealand and also when they arrived in, in the UK. And they're just suddenly expected to go out and kill people. So I was quite interested in, you know, like the characters who were who um, also were in um, Theodore's regiment in the Otagos, who were, you know, teachers, farmers. Um, He was a scholar, so he was more interested in, you know, texts about, you know, the underworld, like the Inferno and Milton, and then suddenly he finds himself in this, you know, this hell on earth. Um, So regarding how much research, a lot of research, was I ever burdened by it? I think most people are. I mean, I think I think you have to get to a point where you say, okay, I, I can't read any more of it because it's actually very heartbreaking. Mm. Um, a lot of it, I mean, I, I think I said it to you on the, the gala night because it's Mother's Day today. One of the things I came across over and over again when reading the letters or the witnesses of uh, soldiers who had watched their friends who were 18, 19 years old dying in front of them was how many of them, and it still gives me goosebumps, how many of them asked for their mum, where, you know, I want my mum, you know, and that's what I was really, really interested in, in looking at. Um, yeah, so. Well, there's a couple of things I just want to ask you about, some real things that you reference in your book, but you sort of shift things around a little bit. So the, the story of um, Nimmo, the, the New Zealand soldier that did have a German background and who's the only New Zealand soldier ever known to have deserted to the That's other right. side or didn't yeah. really desert. You reference him and you sort of link Theodore's story to his in a way. But you also have the professor of um, modern languages at Victoria University who really was harried out of his mission. You've shifted him down to Otago Otago, and made him Theodore's grandfather. So you've sort of taken some real things and played around with them a little bit? Yeah, Yeah. for sure, for sure. Um, I think I wanted to... I, I was fascinated by that story of... This uh, New Zealander, who I think was brought up in the Waikato, his parents were German, and he basically, uh, one night he just had enough, and he decided to go over to the Germans, and he deserted. And what I didn't mention, obviously you can't mention it because it wasn't the right uh, historical period, but finding out what actually happened to him, he ended up working in a sausage factory in East Berlin. He was he turned up in the ni- in the 1950s, which I thought was was quite fascinating. The professor character um, from the start, I'd been reading about how, uh, you know, German New Zealanders were sent to Soames Island. um, And I was particularly struck by this man who was a naturalised New Zealander, probably because I was maybe thinking, you know, I was thinking I'm going to become a naturalised New Zealander. And he had been in the country for 20, 30 years. And a lot of his colleagues had fought for him to stay on. But, you know, the vitriol against Germans at the time or, or anyone with it wasn't just Germans, Hungarians, anyone who, who was, you know, had a different name was so strong that uh, he ended up he ended up being uh, put on the island. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Maxine. Uh, <clears throat> well, there's definitely a psychological element in mine, too. But um, what I try to do with a novel is create an utterly believable and authentic piece of work. 
And so in terms of research, I sort of go for the immersive um, method and two stages. And so I start with the primary sources. And so if I can, I go to the newspapers, the documents. It was more difficult researching Naples from New Zealand. So what I did, I went to the literature that was written at the time by Neapolitans. And I was lucky enough to find this wonderful little um, first edition of a book called The Bay is Not Naples in English. And it's written by Anna Anna Maria Ortiz. And it was published in 1955. And it was a fantastic resource. So she kind of put me into that place. A bit later on, I read um, Eleni Ferranti's quartet. I already had about, I was on about draft four of the novel by then. And then I went, I just kept on writing until I, many, many drafts, until I knew what it was that exactly I wanted, the information I exactly wanted. And then I went into that second immersive stage. And I read the work of outsiders at that point. So, for example, Shirley Hazard, a wonderful Australian novelist who died recently, but lived mainly in uh, New York and also had a home in um, Capri, an island off Naples, and went back and forward with her husband, photographer Francis Stegmuller, uh, to Naples a lot and loved the place. And you've got to remember that, you know, there was a lot of um, people who were a bit um, sniffy at Naples. Now, it was sort of down south. It was full of pickpockets. You had the Camorra, um, so a mafia-typed organisation. You know, I'd heard some pretty scary stories about it myself. And um, so I read widely at this point. And then I started to take notes, only then. When I was first reading from the historical texts and reading Ortez's work, I just wanted impressions. But in the second stage, I made a timeline of all the events that happened in Naples around about the period that I was writing on. So if Vesuvius had erupted and spilled a bit of ash, which it does from time to time, I needed to know that that happened. So that's where the authenticity comes in. But with my character, it's a first-person narrator, Julia. She's a young, naive, quite privileged woman when she meets Ben Moretti, an older Italian businessman in London. And they have a very happy life together for a while until Ben's brother phones and says, you need to come back, we need to look after the failing matriarch. So Julia thinks that Ben's family is going to be very much like her own family, loving, warm, authentic, generous, and what she finds is it's a very different situation. So she's thrown, she's out of her depth, she has no support, she has no access to money, which wasn't unusual in those days, and she's treated, well, she is an outsider, but she's treated almost like a skivvy by the family. And even though she's got quite fluent Italian She can't speak Neapolitan, so she's excluded again from a lot of the conversations, and she starts to feel very much out of her depth. And I was playing with the idea that when we're in a culture that's different to our own, when we're in a situation that we can't pick up all the nuances through language, 
we can start, and we're quite emotional, we've got that heightened level of emotions, we can start to wonder if what we're seeing and thinking is true or not. And so I was playing with that. And... um, yeah, I'll talk a wee bit more about that kind of thing later. But yes, you did go to Naples as well, though. I did, and I will tell you about that because okay. that made all the difference. All right. okay. <laughs> Morris, I did several years of research um, for this particular book while I was writing some other books. Um, not because I'm a great fan of research, but because I had a great hesitation as to whether I could give myself permission to write once. I each day I thought about. Um, Elie Wiesel's famous um, instruction to the writers of the world in the early 1950s, which was essentially, in terms of writing about the Holocaust, if you weren't there, he wrote, don't write about it. And it, and it took me several years of rationalisation, um, and I, I did finally give myself permission to write the book, largely through the medium of the conversations I had with thousands of young people and the listening um, because the, I figured, I decided the world had changed, yeah. and and that they and that young people would benefit from a chance to um, have an encounter with some of the worst and some of the best, because that's the tension that they're going to be navigating as they take over the reins of the world. Um, and, um, but I also um, decided that not only. Um, would this be a journey of discovery for the main character as it would be for the young readers but that it had to be a first person book because the perceptions of the main character um, would be a, a framing device a valve on, on, on everything the readers of this book would, would receive through this fiction about what one of the most challenging areas to base fiction on it, it meant that um, most of the research I did in terms of specifics didn't find its way into the book because it was in some ways a limited view of this vast and terrible landscape of this period in history. And I became aware as I was writing the book that there's a bit of a paradox, I think, um, with the information, with the facts and the concrete elements of research that we put into historical fiction because I, I started to realise that what I felt would make this particular um, part of our human history most real and most credible to at least my young readers was not so much the, the architectural details of what had actually happened and when and where, but the emotional responses and the book is really one primarily of emotion, both well, across the entire spectrum. And once the book was published and, and I was able to, to talk to and listen to a, a lot of young readers, um, this really confirmed that, that slightly paradoxical notion that sometimes it's what we leave out which helps create the power and authenticity of historical fiction. So there's sort of a deliberate vagueness I notice in it about the geography. You know, Felix never seems to know exactly... Well, he never mentions where we are. But there's also a specific um, historical character that you draw into the picture. Talk about Janusz Korczak, who Korczak, becomes yes. the character of Barney in your story. Well, first, yes, the, um, the vagueness of geography was entirely intentional because I knew from 
the experiences of friends who'd written fiction, who'd written historical fiction, that there's a whole army, and God bless them because they keep us honest, but there's a whole army of um, readers out there with their red pen poised. And, um, and, and should you make the mistake of mentioning that, um, that somebody lives at, you know, some, that, that your character lives at 97, you know, Kowalski Street in a particular city, and they will be on the internet saying, you foolish writer, that, you know, there were only, the numbers only went to 93 in that particular street, <laughs> etc. you know, and life's too short to have endless correspondence about books on that sort of level. Um, but also, there's... I think if you can strike the right balance between specificity and and not, then you're freeing your readers yeah, as well absolutely. to to not get bogged down in in unnecessary detail. What's what's Janusz, the second about Janusz. Oh yes, yes. Um, one of the um, real catalysts for me was a chance encounter in a secondhand bookshop with a book called King of Children. I guess I picked it up because it had children in the title. And when I read the blurb, I saw it was the biography of a children's author, Janusz Korszak, who um, um, wrote it in the very... started writing in the early 20th century. He was a, also a paediatrician and a broadcaster. And he ended up, during um, the years of World War II, helping to run an orphanage in um, the Warsaw Ghetto for a couple of hundred Jewish kids. And what struck me most was that at the end of his life, um, when the Nazis came to clear that orphanage out and take all the children and their adult carers off to Treblinka to be killed, um, um, bystanders, and one always wonders if this is apocryphal, but the Betty Jean Lifton, who wrote the biography, had obviously done her research, and bystanders in the railway yard where the children were to be put on the train observed or, or spoke afterwards that they saw a Nazi officer go up to Janusz Korszak, look at his identity papers and say, I know your name. My kids back in Germany, they love your books. His books were translated all over Europe. I couldn't, I, I couldn't, if my kids ever found out that I'd sent their favourite author to his death. So you can go, clear off. And the kids are standing there and he's the closest thing they've got to a father and he knew that if he walked away, they would try to follow and they would be beaten to the ground. And he also knew what lay ahead of them all and he couldn't bear the thought of them standing in that gas chamber alone. So he chose to go with them. And I think reading that was the moment that, that, that really crystallised for me this notion of um, exploring friendship in the context of its opposite, that, 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 thing we all, that capacity we all carry with us to, under certain circumstances, we never know whether we would do the best or the worst or somewhere on that spectrum between, which for young people, the age that I write for, young people are starting to think for themselves and really lay the foundation of their personal moral landscape. I think it's really useful to have some real-life examples. And although um, I too didn't feel at all qualified or able to write the literal story of Janusz Korszak, in my author's notes at the back of the book and in much talking I've done about um, that, that story, I've made it clear that I very much hope that my young readers will use this piece of fiction as a jumping off point to 
make contact with some of the real voices, the Holocaust survivors who are just tenuously still with us, all the voices recorded in, in diaries and letters and archives, and to read about people like Janusz Korshak. Now, Tina, kind of opposite in a way because your book is very studded with real facts and real places. And I admit, I'm one of those people that when I read the book, I have my uh, eye maps and Wikipedia and I'm checking it out, oh swirling around three-dimensionally around Dorset <laughs> Court, saying, oh, you're one of these buildings. I love that. So um, you, you took the opposite approach in a way. Uh, no, no, well, I had never been to London and I was going to write a book set mainly, mainly in London and I was terrified. And um, so I spent a long time with that map and I did actually, um, I found a, there's some very beautiful maps of London and at one point I had, I don't know what the particular map is called, but it's the streets of London and 18, it's not far from the book, it's like 10 years, which is still bad because... Um, the streets were moving so fast at that time. Um, they were built by private people. You know, businessmen would build streets and things. Like, it wasn't um, all public works at that time. So um, so I did try to be as precise as I could with... with and so it had... It's, it took up a whole wall because there was... I think it was like four by four pieces this big um, that had London. Because I didn't know London at all. And I... Knew, the, you know... So um, James Pornicki meets some some uh, um, some young people who are a bit mischievous, and they kind of have a good time as young people do. Um, and luckily for me, London is as walkable as it was in my head. So I, I did the map research, and I found some letters. And uh, it wasn't papers passed. I think it was actually. Um, I don't know if you can get this online, but the National Library has the British papers now, and you can find there was one letter that I found that had the address of the artist who had. So it's still made up, but I thought um, I was scared of the red pen yeah. people, um, knowing how much, how little I knew about um, the actual London. So I, I did actually look at maps a lot and read and read and read. Um, and it's the same with the institutions that you reference, you know, the Colosseum and the Regent. Yeah, Park I found Zoo this wonderful book, which was only available in a weird kind of facsimile kind of photocopy. Um, it cost a, a lot of money to get one from one university reproduces it, and it's called The Shows of London. Um, and it was written, I think it came out in the 1970s or something, and it's extraordinary history. Too much for me to take in, like at... It was, a, it was a great pleasure to immerse myself in that world before it became a burden, and then I was just... The, the terror never really went away. So at that point, I had to give myself permission to, to, to let all the research go to a certain extent and just keep the bits I needed, and I was the same. There was a lot of stuff, first-person narrative. There's a lot of stuff I knew that made up the world, but the character's not going to notice those things and talk about them, but I needed to see it. So um, there was, I'm going to forget, she's, she's named in the back, but there was a wonderful um, domestic historian in London who would talk about what the rooms looked like and what time tea was and um, just down to the nitty-gritty of what would he have seen when he walked into a room. He's not going to say, I see all these things, but I needed to see it. So it was, a, it was an actual real um, movement between... Uh, the 
the things that we know and me being able to make the imaginative leap. It's almost like I needed to be able to walk into the room and then I could, as, if I knew enough, I could let go and make up the story. Mm. Um, and then, of course, I had to go to London because there's just no way you can write um, a story about a ridiculous idea of London having never been there. And there's silly things, like I didn't know that London is all bricks. Like I, I had read that, but I didn't know what that looked like visually. And so a lot of um, a lot of a city is still very much you can see the history and the buildings. It's actually if you're looking if you're looking for the history, it's like walking through two cities at once. Um, there's ghost signs. There are people that spend a lot of time just has um, I guess I don't know what you would call it urban archaeology or something. I yep. just um, you know. If you look up London, you know, there's a, there's a website called Look Up London, which is just about what happens if you actually look up when you're walking the streets. And um, But, yeah, I, I mean, I would just walk from, from Southwark, which was the bad part of town, to, um, you know, to... Where were we? Marlebone. Yep. That's how you say it, isn't it? So, no, I didn't even know how to say things. And, and um, I just went there and spent hours and hours walking. <laughs> right. Now, the same with Morris. You've been to Poland. You walked around. Mm. Yes. And you talked about Naples going there. Did you go to the Western Front? No, but just you no. walked in Eden. No, actually, I I have a section of the book that's set in Heidelberg, and I've been to the Frankfurt Book Fair. Right. That's about <laughs> as close as I've got to Germany. And I thought, oh, it'd be lovely to go to Heidelberg because it looks amazing. Yeah. But I was like, I can't afford to go to Heidelberg. Yeah. So I just looked at loads of YouTube videos. Yeah. And I found, like, as you were saying, sometimes with the research, if you're stuck, you know, and you're hearing details about trees or there's a particular bridge or there's a particular thing, you're like, oh, excellent. Yeah. I can, you know, you end up yeah. using that. I mean, so. I didn't... I hadn't gone to Barbados and there's a Barbados scene, yeah. but fortuitously I ended up in Jamaica, not of my own design, and that made all the difference. It's a different place than Barbados and actually much further mm. from Barbados than I understood, but just to be able to be in the Caribbean, um, really. Um, but, yeah, I had to make up. I still feel I still feel like one day someone's going to come up to me and say, Barbados isn't like that. Uh, <laughs> I had a couple of hours in Naples. I found it very scary. What? Well, I, I actually loved it, and strangely enough, it felt familiar. And I don't know whether that was because I was married to a person from the area and lots of friends, so I, and I had a bit of the language... But um, I had the good fortune, and nothing was planned. I'd, I was five weeks in Italy, and I was travelling with a friend who's Irish and had come over from the UK. And when we got to Naples, we'd arranged accommodation. It happened to be on the seafront. And the next morning, we joined a little tour around the historical parts. And the young woman who was taking that tour, her name's Monica... She was really intelligent. The tour was great. Um, we went to all sorts of places that we mightn't have found by ourselves. And afterwards, I asked her if she'd be interested in taking me to some places that I had in a novel that I was oh. writing. And she thought that was wonderful. And I learned later she actually had a PhD in art history. So it was wonderful. And so one of the things I wanted to see were some of the austere buildings that were sort of left over from the Mussolini mm -hmm. and fascist rule. 
and the central post office was built during that era, very austere, and across the road was the palace of the house of the mutilated, and that actually was for some of the injured soldiers. So that was great. So we went to lots of places, and then Monica said, um, look, I think we need to get a taxi now because some of the other places you want to go are a wee way away. And she said, we're just going to have to go with whoever is in first in the stand. And, you know, he could be crazy. You just don't know what you're going to get. And we don't know what kind of driver we're going to get either. Well, we struck gold. We got Salvatore. And Salvatore was magic. Like, Monica, who we still keep in touch, her family, her nonna, had been through the occupation, born in Naples, still lived in Naples, um, her father, her mother, the whole family sort of gathered around giving me facts, things oh, I would right. never have found out in any other way. But Salvatore, I said to him, I want to go, and I was pronouncing it as the Vimero. No, no, he said, Vamadro. <laughs> and so, you know, that, just the pronunciation. And so we went up to the Vamaro, and I had a street. And I'd used a map like you. You know, I'd found the street that I thought my Moretti family could live on. No, no, said <laughs> Salvatore. I take you where they live. <laughs> and so he took me to this street, and it was all big apartment buildings. And I'm thinking, crikey, you know, my, my family live in quite a lavish, uh, three-storied, big old building with enormous grounds. And he must have sort of... He, he had no English, so it was Italian... Neapolitan gestures and a bit of translation. And um, he said, no, no, you know, your era, they had the big uh, mansions here, only a few. And so that was good. So I, I just agreed that my family would live in this street. <laughs> and then I said, no, I want to go to Posilipo. And that's the juncture between Naples, the city, and the northern arm. Because in my background reading, a fictional fisherman whom I have in the novel... Would I thought would live there. No, no, said Salvatore. We go to St. Lucia. Now, how would I have found that out? That was where the fishermen lived in a poor area of Naples. And so those kinds of things kept happening all the time. And um, a bit later on, I asked him if he knew anything about football, soccer. Oh, yes, his two sons played. So he said, I tell you everything. And so he told me all about soccer, football, and I have a child in the novel who plays. So that was really, really handy. So you had the real McCoy, the local informant, locked you into the detail. Absolutely, but not only that, he then said when we got back to the hotel, and I'm not going to do it in Italian, I, Salvatore, I, in your novel. Yes. <laughs> thought, thought he was. And yeah. I thought, <laughs> oh, yes. And I said, but Salvatore, you weren't even born in the 1960s. He said, you make up, I was there. Yeah. <laughs> and I have. He's, he's Salvatore who takes the family from the railway station up to the Vomero. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's very happy. <laughs> All right, we're nearly at the end of the session, and I've crimped up a bit, I'm sorry, but now's the time for questions from the floor. You've got your hand up first, you're the first. So it could either be to an individual author or a general question, but if it's a general one, we probably only get one, possibly two in. So there's a microphone coming forward. Your question. Can I ask Tina and, and all of the others, one of the things when I'm reading historical fiction that often sort of grabs my attention, either in a good or a bad way, is dialogue and hearing how people talked and sort of zoning in 
to getting people talking in a way that doesn't sound sort of like a, mm. you know, Downton Abbey. Or, so how do you get a naturalistic historical dialogue <laughs> conversation? You know, how do you get a voice? You can only research so much. Yeah, that's right. And um, it's kind of, you can't do the... You can't do the oldie timey voice like I tried that, and it's so, right. it's so contrived. Yeah, contrived. Does someone say contrived? I said contrived. <laughs> it's contrived. Yeah. It, um, and I realised, um, yeah, that what I think of as the way people talked in the olden days is actually out of TV shows and novels anyway. So I don't, we don't actually like. I know, I know we know a certain amount, but um, I, I, I don't know. I don't have a good answer to that, Lawrence. It's a um, Approximation. I think some of the stuff I was reading, I definitely mm. picked up um, a a rhythm of that and a certain wordiness um, that we don't have, and that was kind of really fun to imitate. And I, so I thought, but then as we were going through the editing process, it was like, are we being too wordy here? Do we pull it back? And then as the novel went on and life got a bit more difficult, I started letting the voice become more fractured and... Um, you know, it, it was a much more of emotional voice at that point, so um, not so mannered. So I kind of enjoyed playing with the manner, but I don't know if I got it right. I've I've given it to Londoners now, and they don't seem offended by it, so I'm thinking it's okay. The other thing is, it's when you're, you're as an um, English speaker, not you necessarily, um, writing um, people speaking in a language other than English... Mm. Polish, German, Italian. Mm. How do you capture that language without it being kind of bad waiter kind of language? Well, I think you don't. Um, I I realised from talking to kids for a long time before I first wrote um, fiction set in the past that there was a, a widespread assumption by younger people and probably not so young people too that because the way we receive people from the past, they look different... Um, in all sorts of surface ways and often black and white or mm. only in oil paintings, whatever, there, there, there was an assumption um, that, that people were different. And one of the things I wanted to write about was that people weren't different back then in the essential ways. And because I think spoken language is a very transient thing, it's to do with regions and it's to do with cultural changes and it's a brave author who... who puts all their eggs in the basket of the way people talk in a particular place at a particular time. I think that the way we really speak uh, primarily is our internal dialogues, and they, I don't think, have changed mm. for millennia. And so I just took the approach of, of, of having my characters speaking to each other as they would internally. The fact that my characters um, in Once are all Polish or German and I was writing it in English, made any notion of capturing their actual literal speech absurd anyway. Um, I probably um, did something very similar because I think we have to be true to the voice of our narrator and the interactions need to sound authentic. But I did sprinkle a few Neapolitan phrases that Salvatore taught me. So, si pas, it means you're nuts, you're crazy, that kind of thing, but only a sprinkle, because sometimes that can become a burden too when you're putting in too much language from the country that you're writing about. I think with the, the only... I kind of think of language, I suppose, in different ways, but... 
Um, when I was doing the Kiwi soldiers, I just read letters and how they would have mm-hmm. spoken to each other. Um, and also got New Zealanders, like New Zealand family, to kind of check that that would be okay. Um, when I had the Irish soldier, didn't have a problem with that. And then when I was, there were parts when um, Theodore was talking to his German grandparents, I just, kind of like what you were saying, I didn't want to draw attention to it. Mm-hmm. So I didn't, you know, because um, I'd read... I'd read a lot about, um, you know, people who, if you draw too much attention to it, it can really irritate, irritate the reader. It can be very, very off-putting as well. Um, it can, and it also can be possibly condescending too, so you have to be very careful with it. So um, my sort of go-to was just trying to make the dialogue as natural as possible, more about rhythm than as in, like, translation. This is how a German person would sound. Or, yeah. Thank you very much. Great question. Uh, one more, perhaps. Anyone else got a question? Emily? Um, this is... Is it on? Yep. Uh, jumping off what Morris said about the Eli Wiesel quote and also Tina talking about the past being with us, and I was thinking there's a growing field around inherited trauma. How do you, now that your books are out in the world, navigate ownership and permission and appropriation going forwards? Have you had any thoughts about that? That's great. That's a last question that will require three and a half hours. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, was your, that was your reply. <laughs> that was excellent. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm always about uh, admitting my position and my lack of knowing. Um, so, um, and, and also... Yeah, that you're you're on you're on the thing I love about fiction and why I go to fiction rather than you know I've I've worked in museums I've 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 looked at history I've studied anthropology and all of those things required me to be more sure about the past than I'm I'm actually well not necessarily museums but um, than I'm prepared to be I don't I don't believe there don't is spare a our single, What's that? Don't spare our feelings. No, I mean I think museums are in the same space where you can you can be. Um, you can say this is the way it was, or you can say, actually, there's a story here, and this is what we think, and or here's a narrative. Um, fiction writers take it further than that. But I'm always... I, I don't believe that I have the one story or I have the right story. I'm exploring what one or a, a set of characters might have felt in a moment, and I think others might have mm. different response, but I'm, I'm not pretending to um, own things and I'm happy to be uncomfortable or discomforted by what I'm doing and because um, that's one of the purposes I think of fiction is to actually ask questions more than give answers. Mm. And with the inherited trauma my understanding is that's quite a new field of epigenetics and it is something that I explore in my novel without truly being um, aware of it until much later on and strangely enough I'm about to write an essay about it and that's sort of looking back at the novel and thinking about the family and the evidence of inherited trauma in that family and the implications but again you know it's my made up family exploring it just for my curiosity and um, yeah, I think we just have to be true to our characters' voices and our characters' experiences, and we can't speak in a general, in a general way, on such an enormous, deep, and significant topic. 
I'd agree with Tina. I think a lot of the time you're just trying to find answers um, that could even be to do with your own personal history um, around that, that history. Um, and I think it's also, I also remind myself as well, you know, you're talking about getting down the research uh, wormhole, is that it's historical fiction, you know, that even though there's a, there's, there, of course, it's a scaffolding of history, um, and I also do worry about the people who, with their red markers, kind of going no. And 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 this this is why I was quite generic with, with like Mars, it was generic with names or uh, didn't give specifics because I was worried about people saying actually no, that wasn't there or etc. Um, so for for me, I think it's uh, about finding answers. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. Now we've run out of time. So the last thing I'd just say to you is that the books that have been under discussion are all available for sale just outside, and you're warmly encouraged to go and buy them. I believe the authors will be available to sign those books if you buy them out there. Don't be bringing your old ones. No, do be bringing your old ones. He's very generous. They're going to do that as well. So thank you very much to our four um, authors today. Um, Big round of applause for them, please. And I hope we've gained some valuable insights into that interesting intersection between fact and fiction, history and the made-up stuff, which is so enlivening when we do try and engage with the past. It's not all about uh, the boring facts. It's also about those less tangible things, the sense of history. Thank you very much. This Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival recording was brought to you with funding from a copyright licensing New Zealand grant and with the support of ORFM. The festival receives help from many corners, but we'd like to give special thanks to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Dunedin City Council, the Otago Community Trust and the Lion Foundation.